Remain standing from the reading of God's word from the book of Psalms, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Will you read with me? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Will you pray with me? Lord, the high king of heaven, we ask that you draw us swiftly into devotion and obedience to you and your will. For we are your servants in your kingdom, and whatever brings you glory, allow us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Well, good morning. morning. Doing something a little different today. We are going to kind of start with a song, and I'm going to get into the message here, and then we're going to end our worship time today with worship. Uh, Just as I was looking through the passage in Acts chapter 13, I thought, Man, I'm about to share with you the greatest message ever given to a human being. Man, this message just lights me on fire. I hope I don't lose you in the sticker weeds today, as I sometimes do, but I'm excited. But before we do that, uh, I just want to pray for the Patty family. For those of you who may not know, uh, they had little baby Lila this last week, Pastor Ryan, and uh, well, Pastor Ryan didn't, but his wife did. And uh, otherwise, perfectly healthy little girl. Uh, but she has been having some problems with infection in her blood. So uh, it probably won't be released till Tuesday. So as a congregation, will you just join me in faith and pray? Uh, Father in heaven, we come to you today as your people, praying in the name or the stead, the place of Jesus. And we come to you knowing that you, uh, your son, is making intercession for us. And that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray even when we don't know how to pray. And so, Father God, we come as a congregation. We join our hearts and we join our faith. And we just ask on behalf of the Patty family that you would just comfort them and that you would encourage them and that you would uh, completely heal little baby Lila of every infection in her system and that she indeed would be able to go home by Tuesday or before. And so we just pray for this in Jesus' name, and and we're looking forward to a good report. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, two passages you need to put one finger in Isaiah 53, because we're going to be there for part of our time at the end. And then also uh, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. So today, that psalm that we just read, Psalm chapter 2, that's a powerful psalm. And I, my heart, my hope for you is that there are several passages in the Old Testament, if you don't memorize them outright, that you just remember where they are. You just remember where they are so you can go back to them and read through them and really digest, really metabolize what those passages are saying about God's Messiah, about God's anointed king. But Paul, in this passage, in Acts chapter 13, thinks that Jesus has fulfilled that. And that's what he's trying to tell his synagogue friends in Antioch, Pisidia. And so this missionary team now, they have just come from Cyprus. So last week we talked about them going to Cyprus, Barnabas, Paul, 
their entire entourage. They, this missions team, they went to Cyprus. Now, the island of Cyprus, as we said last week, is definitely a place you want to live. Cool place. Great place to vacation. Great place to have a vacation house. Barnabas is from there. So Barnabas knew that place well. So this is Barnabas' home turf. And now they are traveling. They are going across the Mediterranean Sea, and they're traveling all the way to Pisidian Antioch. So we'll talk about that in a second, but this is a new missionary trip in which they are going to go into a new city. Missionary to India and Persia, Henry Martin, once said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions, and the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. The closer to Jesus' heart that you and I draw, the more our heart will beat with his and his heart is for the nations his heart is for the people of this world and that's what this story is about we're getting ready to go into this freaky town called Pisidian Antioch now you know it later in the New Testament in the epistles as Galatia the epistle to the Galatians is written to these folks and we're gonna find out today what their problem is we're gonna find out today what their struggle is actually what their temptation is and why Paul has to write them later so Paul and his company press on. They, now they travel about 156 miles up to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this involves a boat trip across the sea, which could be very perilous, very dangerous. When they get to the port town in Pamphylia, they have to go to another city, and then there's this road uh, called the Sebastian Way, or it's called the, um, the Via Sebast. And so this road is a well-paved, well-kept Roman road. Uh, thank you, Rome, uh, that Rome has built into this major, major town called Antioch Pisidia. So look at verse 13. It says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, which is a port city. Uh, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. So John, Mark, the implication here is he's deserted them. And we'll find out later. We'll talk about that later. But right now, John Mark, uh, their associate pastor, has left. And they continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Boy, are they going to regret that. <laughs> and they attended the synagogue meeting on the Sabbath and were invited to share a word of encouragement after the reading of the law and the prophets. And so visiting Pharisees, would come to town and to a place like this, if you were visiting Pharisee in your entourage, and, and most synagogues would have uh, a, an apartment that was attached to the synagogue for that guest speaker. So there's no indication that this one has that, that they're staying there, but somehow it's clear that Paul looks like a Pharisee. I mean, Paul still looks like a Pharisee. They send word to him and saying, okay, if you have a word to share from Jerusalem, come and share it with us and they give him this invitation. Now, what you need to know is that Christianity largely adopted its system of worship or our format of worship from the synagogue. We've adopted almost everything from them. We adopted what's called the tefillah. Uh, we just call it praying, <laughs> but they, just, they refer to it as the tefillah, which is the saying of prayers in the synagogue, public prayers. Uh, we adopted the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We adopted that from the Jews. We adopted their priority. They were the only culture in the world, in the history of the world, that met weekly to read from their sacred texts. No other culture in the ancient world ever did that. 
So we adopted that from them. We adopted uh, their missional impulse. They used to proselytize their neighbors. This is why in this passage right here, you have the sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham, and also those who fear God. Those who fear God are the Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And so we adopted all that stuff from them. And then we just, woo, wow, went out from there and made it all uh, exponentially larger. Now, here's what you need to know Paul is trying to tell them. He's trying to tell them that God restarts the human project in Israel and David. God is restarting the human project in Israel and David. What was the human project? What was that? Image bearing. Right? God makes these creatures who are like the sons of God, right? So the, they are uh, in our image. And so he makes these image imagers, these image-bearing creatures, and they have an image-bearing vocation. Okay, so he makes these people, they fall into sin. We know the rest of the story. So God restarts the program uh, with humanity in the person of Abraham, and in particular, Abraham's seed, Israel. And then from Israel all the way to David. So the whole line coalesces into David and his line. So what's going on here? God is re rebooting his project to have image bearers, rulers, co-rulers in the world who spread his message and extend the project of Eden out into the world. This, this is our vocation. Notice uh, verses 16 through 25. Paul says, men of Israel and you who fear God. So those are the two groups. You have the men of Israel and then those men who have come into the synagogue and converted to Judaism. And he says, uh, listen, Shema. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. I love how he puts that, during their stay. <laughs> yeah, they were slaves. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Another really super choice phrase. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, these are, the, these are the Canaanites whom God has given about 400 years to repent. They don't repent. They continue to worship false gods. They continue to worship uh, these supernatural beings through their false idols. And so God has to judge them. And he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took, a, took about 450 years. Uh, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, who is the template for all future prophets, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. No wonder he changes his name here to Paul, right? Uh, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to, to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Yeshua from Nazareth. Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all of the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this is very strategic. What is Paul doing? Well, he's a Torah teacher. This is what every Torah teacher in the ancient world would do. They would stand up and they would recite the nation's history. They, they were taught to give some kind of a paragraph statement or a brief abbreviated statement of their entire history of a people. And Paul has started with Israel and gone all the way to John the Baptist. And so what is he doing? 
He is simply connecting with his audience. He's becoming all things to all men. This is what you do when you're in a synagogue. You retell the story. And why do you retell the story? Well, you retell the story because this story tells us who we are as a people and why we're here. It tells us who we are and why we're here. And what he says is that God fulfilled his promise. What promise? To David. What promise to David? That he would send a savior. And this savior is the new king of all. So Paul reminds them of their scriptures. And those scriptures are replete with promises and prophecies and patterns. The victory through suffering suffering permeates the Old Testament, permeates their sacred texts, and he wants to show it to them. Now, he only gives us a snippet here, but what I'm going to do is take a little bit of space and really unpack this. I'm going to give a little bit more real estate to this idea of the pattern of suffering royalty, the pattern of victory through suffering, ascension through hardship, through trials. Now, when Paul says, according to the scriptures, right, whenever you see that phrase, the gospel according to the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does he say? This is the gospel according to the scriptures. What does he mean? Well, he, there are some particular passages that he's referring to. We're going to look at one main one today. But mostly what he's referring to are the patterns in the Old Testament. And this is one of the main ones. And it's the pattern of the suffering and rising uh, victor. It's the person who ascends to or is exalted to the place that God wants them through intense trial and intense suffering and possibly even near death. So this happens a lot. Now, I just sat and brainstormed and thought, what are, what are some stories that really picture this? Here are some ones I thought of, and you could probably think of your own. Joseph. Joseph. Uh, Joseph is given this amazing dream. Remember the dream? The dream is kind of a smackdown, like on his brothers. If you remember that story, uh, Joseph has this dream where, where uh, they have all these sheaves, like these farming sheaves, and his sheaf is lifted up high, right? His star is lifted above the, all their stars. And so he's telling everybody this dream that God has given him. And then they, they want to kill him. And they nearly do. They throw him in a pit. And they actually do present him to their father as if he is dead, with the blood on his coat. Now then, from that moment, from the time that God calls him, from the time that God invites him into his program to save humanity, he experiences almost nothing but trials. Even when he ascends and is finally exalted to the throne, the right hand of Egypt's throne as the chief administrator, even when he does, he still has to go through the suffering and the heartache of reconciling with this family who's thrown him away like garbage. And so this is a story of a man who ascends, who accedes to the place where God wants him through tremendous heartache and suffering. What about the exodus? The people are saved immediately after and immediately after, they go into wilderness trials. I mean, no sooner are, do they, are they exodist, right? Like, no sooner are they delivered from the bondage of Egypt. God sends them into the wilderness. And this is what the Scripture says. God did not take them the shorter route. It explicitly says he did not take them the shorter route, which was through the country of Philistia. God could have, could have wiped the Philistines out just as easy as, easily as he did any other nation that came against them. But God didn't take them the short route 
Because this is how God builds character. This is God, how, how God prepares a person for their destiny. So they go out into the wilderness and they blow it. They die in the wilderness. Paul actually mentions that in this sermon right here. Our ancestors, they rebelled against our God in the wilderness. And they failed. And they rebelled against God's sovereign reign, against his sovereign rule. And there's not going to be any promised land at all. There's not going to be a promised land without trials, without entering through hardship. And then the Sinai Covenant. What about the Sinai Covenant? Well, this sounds great. God is making a covenant with us. And the ancient idea of a covenant is, man, God is wedding himself to us. God, God is saying, this, of all the nations of the earth, this is my prized, special possession on earth. How exciting. But the Sinai Covenant is a declaration that the Jews are a kingdom of priests unto the Lord. That's Exodus 15, 18 and 19. God says, you're a kingdom of priests. How can they be a kingdom of priests? What is a priest? A mediator. Between God and the nations, the surrounding nations, without a land promise. They have to have a land promise. So God says, I'm going to bring you into this land. This is part of my promise to you. And when I bring you into this land, you're going to be a nation of priests for the nations of the earth. You are going to be the liaison. You're going to be the shining example of what it looks like to be faithful to Torah, to be faithful to my law, to be faithful to your God, to the one true God, while they're worshiping false gods. And so the promised land must be entered into through great adversity and great trials. They will be, there will be no victory for the people until they cross the Jordan. What is the Jordan? The Jordan is their first trial. And they have to cross it by faith. And when they cross it, they defeat the river gods of Canaan. Canaan believed their gods, uh, that the river were deities. The rivers were deities. And they believed that there were gods there who were presiding over the river and that the river formed a boundary for their kingdom. And so when they defeat the river, they defeat their gods. That's the first trial. And then from there, it's all uphill. Listen, everything you want that's worth having is uphill. Everything that God wants for you that's worth having, that's desirable, that's his desire and will for you, it's uphill. And so this is what happens in their lives. They will come into their country through hardship. What about David's covenant? David's covenant. David's covenant is the watershed moment when God institutes a royal house, a permanent messianic dynasty. Notice that David is depicted as victorious through great suffering. His ascension to the throne is auspicious and is full of hardship and difficulty. Remember, right after Samuel anoints him, it's such a cool story because in that story, all of the strapping brothers of David are totally rejected. Like one after another, God says to Samuel, no, not him. I know, he's awesome, not him. Where's the runt, <laughs> right? So the runt comes, beats a path in, and God anoints him and chooses him. And from that moment on, he experiences great victory, but he also experiences great hardship and suffering and heartbreak. You, didn't, you don't think that it broke David's heart to be chased by his life's mentor, a man who was like a father to him because of over-jealousy for 15 years in the desert? That is hardship. But there's not going to be a kingdom without hardship. God doesn't make the man in the palace. He makes the man in the desert. God doesn't make the king in the comfort of an opulent 
castle. He makes him in the desert. That's how God makes kings. And then you have the temple and the sacrificial system. Now, what is the temple? Uh, The temple is a sign. The temple is a shadow. It's a type. And what does it point back to? It points backwards and points forwards. So what the temple points back to is it points back to the garden. Because what is the garden? The garden is in the world. The garden is in the world. And the garden is a sanctuary. It's paradise. This is where God lives. God lives in paradise. When you live in an arid country, in an arid place where there's no water, uh, and you have a paradise, a lush, verdant valley or a mountain uh, side, that's where God lives. And so they live in the garden with God. And then because of sin, they're banished from the garden. And when God calls them to build a tabernacle or to build a temple, how is the temple and the tabernacle decorated? With garden scenery. It looks like a garden. In fact, in the temple complex, there is a garden. And that's where God dwells again. So it points back to Eden, which is God's sanctuary. And God's sanctuary is the place where he dwells with men. And it also points forward to a future sanctuary in which the knowledge of God will cover the cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of God will will cover the earth in a time when God's presence is going to once again tabernacle with humanity, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on humanity in Acts chapter 2. So God's restoration project is very much underway. God has poured his spirit out on his people, and God is going to read the end of the book. What's the end of the book? It's New creation, new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there's a garden and there's a city. You ever wonder why you love gardening? Some of you don't. You're acting against your nature there. (laughs) You ever wonder why you love gardening? Because you're wired to. You ever wondered why you want to build a house or develop some land? Because you were wired to. And so at the end of the story, this is what we see, a perfectly developed world a garden, a sanctuary, and a city in which there is no temple because John says God Almighty is its temple. And so this temple and this sacrificial system, this is what it is, but at the heart of this system is a bloody, awful, brutal thing. The shedding of blood. Because there's no remission without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness unless someone is covered. And so at the heart of this beautiful, amazing new symbol is this bloody, awful thing in which the throat of a lamb is cut for your sins. And that's going to point forward to a time now in which the Messiah himself is going to suffer. So what you need to understand about the prophecies, the promises, and the patterns in the Old Testament is most of the things that you see that are fulfilled in the New Testament, they really are patterns. There really are these kinds of patterns, but there are some specific prophecies as well. The first one is this, is that Isaiah sees, or Isaiah the prophet sees God as king. Isaiah the prophet sees God as king, Isaiah chapter 6. Well, he has this sort of knocking you out of your seat vision of God as king, high and lifted up. And why would that be important? Because the surrounding nations are claiming that they are the supreme kings of the world. Every one of them, Assyria, Babylon, Anatolia, Egypt, you name it, they're all claiming to be the supreme kings of the world. And so God gives him this vision, this startling, knocking you out of your seat vision. No, I am the high and exalted king. 
And immediately he is confronted with his own unrighteousness. The coal has to be taken from the altar and and to cleanse his lips so that he can become a prophet and be God's spokesman. And so to be under the saving rule of God, to be under the saving rule of God, one must be cleansed of their sins. Their sins must be atoned for. What about about Isaiah 52, 7? I love this passage. I think there's a song that someone wrote with these very words. And here's what it says. How beautiful, how lovely. On the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And who proclaim shalom, peace. Who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. And what is the message of salvation to Zion? Your God is king. The God who left you and went off into the desert when his glory departed from this temple is coming back. And how lovely on the mount are the feet of them who are bringing that news and running into town to tell us our God is coming back. He's king. And his reign is going to be restored. It's God's saving reign of righteousness. This is what we lost in the garden when we rebelled against his reign. And so this is a prophecy now. This is a prophecy that someday there's going to be good news. And that those glad tidings, those good news that we sing about at Christmas is going to be God as a high and exalted king. And number two, the righteous suffer in the Psalms. Boy, if you want to do a fun study, take a summer, take this summer, rest of the summer. However long it takes you and read through the Psalms. Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 1, what is it, 50? And just highlight every passage either where the psalmist himself is crying out to God for salvation in the midst of their suffering, or they are prophesying a future Davidite, a future David who is going to suffer on behalf of the people. These psalms are everywhere. Psalm 2, Psalm 7, Psalm 22, 69, 109. It's a thread that runs throughout the psalms. The psalms are exclusively associated with David as king. He is God's royal martyr. The righteous king who suffers and cries out constantly to God for deliverance. Some of these psalms can't possibly be about David. And the psalmist in his time knows it. Psalm chapter 2 is not about David. Now it is, but it's not. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now that's what we call inaugural becoming. Not ontological becoming. Not the becoming of the entity itself, but the becoming of the king. This is an inaugural becoming. Today is the day you're inaugurated as my son king, right? That's what he's saying here. So Paul quotes this psalm, Psalm chapter 2. And what Psalm chapter 2 does is it takes the land promise, which is 2 Samuel uh, 2, or 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. So 2 Samuel 7, 10, he takes the land promise, And then what he does is he blows the land promise out to the rest of the world. The sons, this David-eyed, this David-ling, this future David, his inheritance is not going to be Abraham's land. It's going to be the ends of the earth. This David is going to inherit all the nations. Now, this is new. The Jews did not know this. 
about David, but this future David, that's what he's going to receive. So it takes the land promise and it starts with their land, their borders, and blows it out to the ends of the earth. Then it takes the line promise, which is in verse 11, 2 Samuel 10, 11, or 14, 11, and what it does is it takes the line promise and converges it into one Davidite, one person, one future David, one definite son who is going to do all this. And how does he suffer? Even as God is saying, you're my anointed king, I've exalted you to the throne, how does he suffer? The nations rage against him. The nations rage against the son. And God says, hey, kiss the son. Don't make him angry. You don't, you don't want to see him when he's angry. So Acts 13, 32. So Paul says, we tell you the good news. What's the gospel? What God promised our ancestors he, said, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus from the dead. So this suffering and dying David has been risen from the dead. This suffering, dying David has been risen from the dead. He says, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing, blessings promised to David so it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. So the Holy One, this future David, who Paul is saying to this group of synagogue-going Jews, he's come. <laughs> and that salvation that God has promised us has come. That salvation is God's world-writing justice. It's God's world-writing justification. And God is saying to the Jew, based on my son's sacrifice, you can be justified. You can be in the right in my court. And he's saying to the Gentile nations, based on my son's sacrifice, you can be in the right. You can stand justified in my court of law. God's world-writing justice is his salvation. That's what it is. Salvation from death and hell and sin. And this is what Paul is trying to tell them. That day is here. Number three. Isaiah's prophecies of a new royal martyr. Oh, I love this one. We're going to just kind of actually close with this one. The nation of Israel falls into exile and enslavement to Babylon because of their repeated idolatry, injustice, corruption, and sin. And so the kings who follow David in his line now are corrupt. <laughs> They're evil. How could you possibly get all that the Old Testament promises about a future Messiah from a mere earthly king. How could you get that? You can't. You have to have a king whose nature transcends earthly bounds. And this is the kind of king that Jesus is. This is what God prophesied in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, write that down. Ezekiel chapter 34 and Ezekiel chapter 37. Here's what God says. I am sick and tired of these kings these shepherds. That was ancient parlance for kings. He says, I'm sick and tired of these corrupt kings who do not heal my people. They don't feed my people. They don't go after lost sheep. They don't do anything. They don't lead my people into the truth. And here's God's resolution to that. I myself am going to come down there and be their king. Me. Shocking. And then at the end of the prophecy, he says, so then, I myself am going to be their king through my servant David. Okay, pretty clear. Enigmatic if you're an ancient Jew, but for us, looking back on it, it's pretty clear what God is trying to say there. Yahweh is going to become incarnated as the, as the Davidite, the new David, and he's going to be the king. 
And he calls him this in Ezekiel 37 as well. And so, the, this line of kings has failed. They have failed to deliver on Abraham's promise, which is to bless all the nations of the earth. They have failed to deliver on the promise of Sinai's covenant, which is to live faithful to Yahweh and be a nation of priests to the earth. And they have failed David's covenant. They're the sons of David, and they have failed it. And now God is going to resolve this with a new servant. So Isaiah's entire prophecy, entire book, is about a suffering servant who will bring about a new exodus. Establish God's eternal kingdom by means of a sacrificial sufferer, a royal martyr, a sacrificial sufferer. So his entire book, this entire book, if you want to sum it up in one statement, it's right there. It's about a servant who suffers, a royal servant who suffers, who will bring about a new exodus of people from sin, not from Egypt, from, but from the bondage of sin, establishing God's eternal kingdom by means of a sacrificial suffering offering. This is clear. So some of the things that we note in the old book there is that the king is entitled, my servant. Now, only three people in the Old Testament were called the servant of Yahweh. Three people were called the servant of Yahweh. Moses, David, and Isaiah. Unless Isaiah is talking about a future David. <laughs> unless, I, David is unless Isaiah is prophesying a future Messiah, Messianic king. So that's in Isaiah 37 and 52 and 53. So this servant is called my servant, the servant of Yahweh. This king is anointed. He's anointed by the Spirit. He's commissioned for a specific task of restoring justice to the corrupt leadership of Israel. So he's going to restore God's justice, just God's just salvation. And that's in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 42. He's going to bring light to all the nations. Again, Isaiah 9, 2 and 42, 6 through 7. He's going to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. He's going to open the eyes of those who are blinded in their sin. And this king is the root or the branch of Jesse's family line. Chapter 11, chapter 53. He's, he's a direct descendant from Jesse through David. And this future king is connected to God's past promise to David for an eternal ruler. What is going to be the extent of his kingdom? Limitless, endless. Of the extent of his kingdom, there will be no end. Right? That's what we sing at Christmas. So he's going to extend his kingdom into all the earth. And the servant's royal exaltation in chapter 52 is through suffering. Now notice this verse here. Notice what he says, verses 13 through 15. He says, he shall be high and lifted up. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of a man's children. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, that's a very odd verse. I would think that if I was a good synagogue-going Jew and Paul were reading me that, I would wonder, what does that mean? Because the word sprinkle is the same word that's used in Leviticus for the priest, the high priest, going in the inner sanctum and sprinkling everything with the blood of the lamb, or the, you know, the sacrificial offering. Why is God going to sprinkle the nations? Because he's going to save the nations. Because God's intent is to go beyond Jacob, to go beyond Israel, and to coalesce all the nations of the earth into his house. And so Isaiah 53 continues the royal sufferer theme, asking who has believed our message. Now, Isaiah is going to anticipate. This is a hard message to swallow. 
this is going to be very difficult for you to even believe it. And Paul says this too. Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5. When he warns them, Paul says this. Listen, this is the message, but don't be like your ancestors. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5 when he says, uh, who could believe this message? This message is unbelievable, what is being stated to us here. So Paul cites this, the difficulty in Acts 13.38. If you go back there, it says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You've never been able to attain it. So take care of what the prophets have said. It doesn't happen to you. He says, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. <laughs> For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone were to tell you, even if a prophet from God were to come to you, if Isaiah himself were to come or Jeremiah were to come back from the dead and tell you, you wouldn't believe it. Because it's so hard to believe that every single one of your national institutions, your systems, everything converges into the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine a day in which God is going to send his son, the king, and his son, the king, fulfills your entire sacrificial system and, by the way, is the high priest who presents it to God? Can you imagine a day in which Jesus of Nazareth, God is going to send a man from Nazareth, no less. What good can come from Nazareth? God is going to send a Jew from Galilee, from rural Galilee, to fulfill the entire ancestral office of prophet, priest, and king. Can you even fathom it? And that essentially is what Paul is telling them. This man has brought this to its intended completion. He has filled it full. How could they hear this message? Very difficult to hear. Now let's hear it. Go back to Isaiah 53. I want us to read it. I want you to take it deep into your heart. This passage, by the way, is being used by Messianic Jews in Israel to convert their secular Jewish friends. And most often what is happening is their secular Jewish friends will hear this passage being read from Scripture and the Christian doesn't tell them where it's coming from and they will immediately say, I don't believe in the New Testament. This isn't in the New Testament. It's in Isaiah 53. It's in your Old Testament. Listen to these words. Verse 2. says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. So notice that this, this new servant of God, this royal sufferer, this royal martyr, he's despised. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brings us shalom, but that brings us peace with God, reconciliation. And with his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. We are restored to God. And all, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Think about it for a second. This man is going to fulfill the sacrificial system. Now watch how he does it. Isaiah continues. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, 
who considered that he was cut off uh, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And so this man has been cut off now from the land of the living. He is dead. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was perfectly innocent. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So his soul is going to make the offering for guilt, the guilt offering for sin. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for those sinners, those transgressors. This is a powerful, powerful passage that tells us what this new David is going to do. He is going to ascend to the throne. The moment of his coronation, his exaltation is going to be the moment he breathes his last when he is pierced and crushed and bruised and wounded and lashed for our sins. I think it's pretty clear. Now back in Acts 13, verse 42. There is a mic drop moment here. I love the way Paul ends the sermon. Paul warns them, and I think it's very interesting, unlike Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't say, hey, come, repent and be baptized. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what, guys, I can sense that you're all very receptive right now. Let's do an altar call. He doesn't say, bow your heads, close your eyes. Let me see your hands. He doesn't do that. He just drops the mic and says, all right. See y'all later. <laughs> you know, like he just walks off the stage. And what do they do? They implore him, please come back. We, we were very interested in this message. Please come back and share more with us. We want to hear more. Okay, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. What is he saying? What had happened is those very Jews whom the Bible in Habakkuk 1 and Isaiah 53 and whom Paul warned them, do not reject this message about your king and the world-saving righteousness that has come through this king. Do not reject this message. And they do. Their leaders get together and they stir up dissension And they reject Paul. Some do believe. And so he says, now, your loss is the Gentiles' gain. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This was your vocation all along. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They said, well, yay, for us. And they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who are appointed for eternal life believe. So the response that God expects in us is to receive this gospel, not to reject it. When we hear this message, the response that God expects for us is to welcome it and to be glad. To say, this is our message. God meant it for us. And that's the response that he expects from us today. So I'm just going to drop the mic. I'm going to leave the stage. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up you guys want to make your way back to the stage and we're going to spend just a few minutes here worshiping 
We're gonna worship this king. And my heart for you is that you would respond. Respond as the Holy Spirit moves on your spirit, moves in your mind. Respond to him uh, in the words of these songs. Let's pray together. God, we just thank you that we have the guarantee of your presence because we're here and you live in us. And thank you, Lord, we have made this ground sacred, hallowed ground. And Lord, we pray that you would come and pour the Holy Spirit out on us. Lord, as we celebrate the good news, the good news is that God's righteous king, his righteous sufferer has come to die for sin and accede to his throne, to make atonement for our sins and sit at the right hand of the Father until he brings all things under the subjection of the Son. Give us a vision of that this morning, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you.